From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you a final tale, a final story from around the world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Final in that this is the season finale of season five of the show. It's hard to believe that we're here already and that, well, 2023 is already done and that we're through five seasons of the show. You know, as we get ready to approach this end of the year episode, it's kind of surreal it's kind of um, amazing to think that we've done well well over 50 episodes and that we're here going to get ready to go into a busy off season one getting some rest but two doing disputes digest and also thinking about you know beyond season five what's next for the show tales of the tribunal is something that as many of you know started with me and a laptop walking around recording from my computer uh, microphone really a great look Uh, i didn't have microphone or any of the things that we have today and the show has grown into so much more than i ever thought it could be and um i am so moved by the impact that we've been able to have here in the field so, some of the things that we're thinking about as we go into this offseason and to season six and beyond is, well, more content. How can we bring you more audio in the way that you like? How can we maybe expand to YouTube? How can we maybe bring more active uh, clips and notes on LinkedIn? We're actively thinking about that. We're thinking about how to bring you the news more because there's so much going on across so many industries and especially in international disputes and, well, technology is growing so fast. Disputes Digest feels like it's just a a snapshot of what's going on and other great publications that exist in the field. They do their best to capture it, but, you know, reading and audio, there's only so much that we can do. So we're trying to figure that out as well. We, of course, always want to interview more and more people. So we'll be continuing our streak of this year being live at events and interviewing people both on the street and speakers at those events. And, of course, bringing you special editions when and where we can. And then finally... The two things that I would like you, the audience, to be thoughtful of and to definitely reach out to us at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on is we love to interact with the community. We get emails from the audience from time to time, but we really want to see more of that. And we want to have this to be more of a conversation. A lot of the time, it is me and perhaps the guests just talking, me telling you things. We want to hear from you in the audience. And so we're going to think about ways that we can do that more in upcoming episodes and even with Disputes Digest. Another way that we want to hope that we can do that is that we want to get more people involved. We've had situations in the past where we've had students and young practitioners work with the show as research assistants and even running some of our social media. And those are still things that we're actually going to be recruiting for over the next two to three months. So if you know someone that's interested, someone that you think would be great in media or would be interested in this or in international law arbitration, just trying to get their foot in the door, definitely let us know at, again, talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And we would love to chat with them to see if it's a good fit. Well, listen, that's enough of me talking about the show. Now let's get on to the show. And this week, we end season five, as we always like to do with a great 
final guest of the season. And this one it is one who needs very little introduction, so I will leave it nice, concise, and tight, and we will jump into the episode. This week, we talk with someone who is Hong Kong-based and is a giant in the international arbitration and legal world. I'm speaking, of course, of Miss Louise Barrington of Arbitral Women, ICA, CISG, international arbitration fame from all the places. You could certainly spend um, a considerable amount of time reading her bio and all the things that she's done. We caught up with her on the very last days that we were in Hong Kong, rounding up the interviews for season five of the show and talking with um, a lot of great guests. It was so much fun to talk with Louise. Um, We got to chat and hang out a little bit during Hong Kong Arbitration Week and got to know each other in that way. So I was really glad to be able to set up this episode. It was a conversation we've been wanting to have for a couple of seasons now so i'm glad we were able to be in the same place at the same time and have this conversation so get your notepads out this is a great one and uh, Luis gives a lot of uh, practical tips and insights from someone who has um, done a number of things across the field and knows a lot about the industry so i hope you enjoy this conversation so sit back relax and enjoy my conversation in this holiday episode with miss louise barrington we'll see you on the other side of the show Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, I know you've been listening to me talk to you from Hong Kong, Hong Kong Arbitration Week, and here in Asia for the last several weeks. Well, guess what, listeners? We are still here in Hong Kong talking with some of the attendees, not only of Hong Kong Arbitration Week, um, but among the international arbitration community more broadly here. And so today we have a very special guest, Miss Louise Barrington. Louise, welcome to the show. Your name and reputation certainly precede you here on the show. We would have talked about that, you know, in the opening credits and opening notes here. But uh, why don't we give the folks at home a little bit of an introduction? Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? I'm a Canadian trained lawyer originally. Uh, But after I practiced there for a few years, I ran away from home and uh, I studied international law, international private law and um, European law in Paris. And uh, the idea was to stay for a year or two and the studies were the excuse, but I ended up staying there for about 12 years and teaching there. Um, Went back to Canada, taught there for a bit and then had the wonderful luck um, of getting an invitation to join the ICC as the director of the what was then called the ICC Institute of International Business Law and Practice. Immersively, it's now called the uh, Institute of World Business Law. Okay, let's take a step back before uh, we get into to that part of the lore. Um, did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer and want to go to law school and, and practice uh, you know, law in that way, or, or how did that come to be? Uh, I was told that at the age of three, my father told me I was probably going to be a lawyer because I like to argue. Fair enough. And so, you, and so indeed you did. You followed it uh, quite along. I did. Uh, and actually, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer because nobody in my family was a lawyer, so I really didn't know too much about it. But I liked the idea. And uh, when I finished my undergrad, I'd done well enough that I could get into law school. So I thought, well, I'll go and see where it leads me. And so then I wonder, okay, so that that tells us how you got to law school in the first place. But what about for international law and international arbitration? I mean, what what was the lead in there? What was the breadcrumbs that took us to that? I mentioned that I was in Paris. This was in the late 80s, probably before you were born. But anyway, (laughs) um, 
I took a course in international commercial law with uh, Emmanuel Gaillard as the professor. And he did a lot of talking about this case, an arbitration case called the Pyramid Plateau case, which I'm sure everybody knows about. Sure. But I was just absolutely amazed by this case and but not only that but by the process of arbitration as he described it and I that this is what I want to do Mm. this it sounds great because in my studies having come from a common law Ontario jurisdiction I was suddenly in a civil law jurisdiction I knew there was supposed to be different but I'd never done comparative law in school it wasn't really very trendy in America and Canada and um, I was so surprised about some of the things in the, com- in the civil law. And as I got to know them more, I realized that the civil law is this great system. It works really well. Sure. Uh, it's just very different from what I was used to. And I loved that comparison. And what I saw in arbitration was the ability to take from both sides, from both systems, and marry them, hopefully, to come up with a procedure which would be satisfying and efficient and that both parties would trust that no matter who lost or won they'd both walk away thinking they'd been heard i think i i I bet there's a number of people that sort of find themselves in international disputes um, and resolutions of those disputes with that same sort of experience there's some of a a, sort of a, a flashpoint where they have a sort of an exposure to some sort of case or a dispute and they say, oh, well, naturally, I mean, how do I, as as an American or someone that's Chinese or an Indian that has a dispute with someone halfway across the world, find a neutral form by which I can have trust and have confidence that uh, I'm going to get a fair shake when it goes to uh, the dispute process? I think it certainly, it certainly was a, kind, a, a real eureka moment for me. Mm. Um, there were no courses in international arbitration then. Uh, this was simply a, a couple of lectures in another course. And I learned my arbitration from the gods of arbitration. <laughs> ICA at the time had 40 members, 39 men, one woman. Uh, and they were self-chosen. They got together, um, very well-known people that uh, are still famous today, some of them. I um, remember her name, but she was an African woman. Um she was very well known at the time, but it's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that uh, when you talk about um, folks that are doing commerce across the globe, I mean, truly, they just have to have a regime that makes sense. You can't have large sums of money and impacts of entire industries or economies that just have sort of, a, oh, we'll just see what happens at a local court and roll the dice. One of the main reasons why I, I rem- Robert Brinner, who was the president of the ICC court at one point, said arbitration's not alternate. It is the preferred means because it's the only one which gives everybody the possibility of a neutral uh, forum where you're not worried about the judge on the other side being paid or at least being very sympathetic towards the person um, of the same nationality. That's right. And, um, and sometimes, you know, even to this day, you know, I, I will talk with um, my, my colleagues in the U.S. bar associations and they will be surprised to hear that international commercial arbitration is the predominant means and preeminent means of resolving disputes worldwide. They'll get the impression, oh, it's not federal court. I mean, what do you mean? <laughs> I think the more international work that gets done, the more people are aware of it. And certainly, the, you know, the big companies in the States are dealing with Asia and Europe. They know about it. Sure, 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 sure. But uh, take your normal lawyer, and most of them don't really know about it. 
It's only recently that arbitration is being taught in law schools, at least in Canada. I would say in the last maybe 10 or 15 years. I tried to get it taught in my old, my, my alma mater, and they didn't want to hear about it. They do teach it now, but 20 years ago? Yeah. What's that? To your point, it is sort of a, it's just an evolution of a conversation, right? I mean, as people are more aware that it's a thing, you know, they want to be involved to make sure that their students are prepared. Exactly. I think that, you know, if, if, if as a, a lawyer counseling a client, you don't make them aware of international arbitration as a choice, uh, they may decide it isn't for them, but at least to know what it is and, and what the advantages are, I don't think you're doing your client a service. You know, putting a pin in that there, and we'll certainly probably come back to some of those themes in a, in a short bit. What do you suppose uh, young Louise, had she not decided to be um, be a lawyer, go to international arbitration and do that, what do you suppose you might have done instead? Someone that likes to debate or argue or, you know, what, what sort of career do you think that would have led you to? came across my high school yearbook a couple of months ago, and it said uh, I was going to be a journalist or going to the Foreign Service. At the time I went to law school, I was singing in a band. So I don't know where I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, fair enough. Um, th- I think that th- those are two new ones. I don't know that we've heard a, a journalist to Foreign Service. Maybe we've had that um, on the show before. That's, that's interesting, interesting. Um, okay, so... So let's let's take a step back into the international arbitration realm a little bit and uh, continue along that those lines. Um, you've talked about ICA. Um, I, I recognize in that sort of explanation, folks at home may not know what ICA is. Um, can you give a little bit of a background of what ICA is and how it sort of exists in the current uh, international arbitration space? Well, ICA now is different from what it was back then. It's it, it's the same group, but it's expanded tremendously. As I said, it was a self-selected group right. at the time. It's the International Council of commercial arbitrators, ICCA. So at that time, as I said, there were the gods of arbitration were sitting at ICA and they would get together once in a while. They would have a conference once every, I think two years, um, which is another story. Um, But now it has become a membership group and you can join ICA. Uh, either as a professional or as a as a young ICA member, and they're very very active and doing a lot of education. And they're, they're, it's a terrific group around the world. That's right. And uh, well, as we sit here in Hong Kong, I mean, you have the ICA conference that's uh, coming up in just a few months. Looking forward to it. I mean, Hong Kong is really a terrific place to arbitrate because of ev- it's got everything. It's got great law, great judges, great people that know about arbitration, counsel, barristers. Um, lots of services, and of course, it's such a great place to visit because it's convenient and it's modern and it's got it's got everything. So <laughs> we want to make sure that people know that, and 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 uh, and so having ICA will be really, I think, great because it, a lot of people will come to ICA that have just never been here before, and it's a great excuse to come. In fact, I don't know that I don't, I've never been to an ICA con- uh, Congress before, so this will be my first one um, in May. So. Uh, that will be cool. I'll be back here. I guess that's, what, six months or something like that from now? It's about six months from now, yes, and we'll both be back for it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's, a bit, it's in May. It's the beginning of May. Yeah. So, well, before then, and this is um, something that uh, we probably will have also have covered in your intro as well, before we get to uh, ICA, we then have a, a little thing called the Vismoot that is going to occur <laughs> in, um, in in March and April, um, you know, the, the oral rounds in uh, both Vienna and, as it goes to you, in Hong Kong. Um, tell us about the Vismoot um, and how you got involved in, uh, and how you're involved with it now. Involved with the Vienna Vis, which is now in its 31st year. 
I think it was around the eighth year that I was invited to go and, and act as an arbitrator. And I was a relatively new arbitrator at the time. I'd had a few cases, but very few, and was just kind of developing. I was teaching. I went to the Vismut in Vienna and was absolutely blown away by what I found there. It was just an amazing, amazing experience. First of all, the, the, what impressed me most was the learning curve. These kids would come in sort of shy and worrying about where to sit and not knowing what to do on Monday. And by Thursday, they walk out of those rooms like seasoned professionals. <laughs> it was a miracle. And besides that, of course, besides the fact that, you know, that they were learning tremendously by doing, the the camaraderie and the, 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 the mix of all these, you know, dozens and dozens, scores of different nationalities and different backgrounds, and people getting together and making friends, which I now know are lifelong friends. It was, it was fabulous, and I loved it. But there were no Asians there. And by this time, I was teaching in, in Hong Kong. Mm. I, uh, the ICC had sent me to Hong Kong to open ICC Asia. And I had done that, and then I had resigned to teach because I wanted to arbitrate, and it was just going to be difficult to be arbitrate and be working for the ICC. It didn't work. So um, that's, that's, that's how that, that happened. But um, when I was in Vienna, as I said, I loved it so much, but the, the absence of Asians was quite obvious to me. There, was, there, were, there were Europeans, there were lots of Americans, some Africans, some South Americans, not too many, and very, very few Asians. Mm. And I realized, being in the faculty of a university here, that, that um, arbitration just wasn't on the radar, mm. for one thing, but also the teaching was very much still rote teaching. You sit in a big classroom, you listen to the teacher's notes, the teacher reading or speaking about the notes, you memorize it, you take notes, uh, and then you spit it back. And that's the old-fashioned way of doing it. And they were still doing that in just about everywhere, everywhere I, could, I f could find in, in Asia. Mm. And there was certainly no concept of doing mooting as an educational experience. So anyway, I um, went back to Vienna the second year and had a long chat with Eric Bergson, the director and founder of the Vismut. And I said, I, I think we should do something in Asia. And he kind of said, well, we, there's only one, there's only one moot, there's only one moot. And I said, well, what about if we had a regional runoff? And he said, no, I want every student who participates in the VIS to have an international educational experience. Mm -hmm. It's very important, it's part of that. And I said, well, how about if you let me make something that would compete with you. Mm. And he kind of liked that idea because the VIS in Vienna had already grown and there were over a hundred teams registered already. He was running it basically on his own with help from his his uh, partner Brigitta and, uh, and her daughter Patricia mm -hmm. who was about 15 at the time, 14, I don't know. Um, he was doing it all himself and so he said, well, well, you can try it. So I went back to Hong Kong where Tony Canham, 
who's the was then the president of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. East, uh, he was the president of the World Arbitration right. uh, CIR, and I was on the board of the East Asia branch. And Tony had come to us and said, "Look, you have money. Spend it. Spend it uh-huh. on what you what you're supposed to be doing. Spend it. Educate people." promote arbitration. So I said, okay, I have this idea. And um, with support of many people on the board, principally um, Glenn Haley, um, also there were, there were several others on the board, but I won't mention them, but, but I said, I want to start this thing. Will you underwrite it? I don't know what it's going to cost, but will you help? And they said, yes. So they Glenn and I and Eric signed a probably one-page letter saying that we could do this. And I had to promise that I would respect the ethics of the Vis Vienna, and it wasn't going to be commercial, it was going to be educational. And uh, so we did it the first time. We had 14 teams. Then the next year, the timing was that Easter was very, very early, and that determines the dates for the moot. And so I said, let's try our moot after Vienna. Hmm. And it didn't work out very well. Hmm. It wasn't popular for a number of reasons. But what it did do was allow Eric Bergsten to come and see it because he was no longer working, preparing for the moot because he'd finished it. Right. So he was able to come and see that we were really doing as much as possible exactly what he was doing. Um, we had an Asian flavor. We have, you know, our logo has junks on it, on a junk on it, whereas their logo has the tall, shaling, tailing, sh- sail, the tall ships. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and we've got different cultural activities, etc. And of course, there are a lot more Asians. So after that, it's just been growing ever since. And we'll have about 120 this year. We had 128 at our, at our peak, and then COVID happened, uh, and, uh, and, but people are coming back this year. Well, sure, and, um, and I, I imagine it's probably the same in both locations that uh, there was probably a little bit of a drop off during uh, COVID, or, you know, uh, but folks are maybe coming back and finding their way back to wanting to be in person. Well, we, we, we did it three years virtually and that you know we we were first to do it Mm. um because when we saw what had happened everybody was registered they were ready to come they had a lot of them had their plane tickets already they were all prepared and we couldn't not have it so with the help of ibram um which is a, a a new group here in hong kong um they had the technical knowledge and we knew what we wanted, what we needed, and so we got together and put together a virtual this mood, this East mood. So then we did it. Vienna did it a couple of weeks later, and of course, then people who thought you could never do a hearing in by you know by virtual. You did hundreds of them. Yeah. <laughs> we we did hundreds of them, <laughs> but but professionally, the people who did the hearings. For us, the, the 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 arbitrators who came and or who attended virtually, they realized that it was possible to have a hearing. And of course, I don't know how many you had, but I had dozens and dozens of hearings after that in the next three years. And we still do all our procedural work in 
by virtually now. I don't think I mentioned this on the show before, but I mean, quite literally in the early days of the pandemic, not even the early days, the week before the world shut down, I had my first virtual hearing because we weren't in fact able to meet with the other side um, because of, uh, of travel restrictions already. So, I mean, uh, that was, you know, I think the week of March 10th or something like that, 2020. So that was my first one. We had plenty of those, both in mediation, arbitration hearings, it kind of all of us, uh, what was unimaginable five years ago, uh, became the norm and still kind of it. In Canada in 2020, I had two parties in front of me. We were scheduled to uh, have a hearing uh, in person on the in, in June. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So right. we met in, we met virtually. And um, and one of the lawyers, who's an older guy, said, I, I, I've been a lawyer for 30 years. I, I can't do this. I can't do this without being a, having the people in person. I just, I cannot represent my client properly. If I don't have the, the people in front of me that I'm cross-examining, that I'm not dealing directly with the arbitral tribunal, I just can't do it. And I don't have the technical skills. I haven't got anybody young in my office that can help me. And I said, okay, this is June. We'll take a recess we'll go for three months until September and in September if we can get together perfect if we can't we're going virtual so you better be ready right and so that's what happened and we had it virtually and I guess he's probably had lots since then now that he knows he can do it uh, well, one of the things about the legal profession is that it's not exactly the most progressive in terms of adopting new new habits. Um, and that's probably a little bit of that. You know, people are apprehensive about things that they don't really know or are not familiar with. I mean, I was terrified when we started working on the Vis East moot. I mean, I just, the virtual Vis East. <gasps> I, what does that even mean? <laughs> well, it, no, no. I mean, we, we just, we called it that immediately. I, I remember sitting with Alex uh, Povey, who was working with me at the time. And we just looked at each other and said, we have to do it. I don't, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we have to do it. So we did. That's that's really a cool story um, to kind of hear the um, the account from someone that was literally doing it on the ground at the in real time. Speaking of firsts, um, something you said sort of in your intro as we were sort of building up to those this stories is that uh, is the ICC sent you to open up the Asia office. Can you talk to us? about that a little bit, what that experience was like, um, maybe in retrospect. It was just so much fun. It was it was a dream job. It really was. Um, there were some changes around uh, the, how the Institute w- was going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, um, the ICC at that time had been talking for several years about opening a, quote, branch office. They've never had a branch office. I don't know if you know how the ICC works, but the ICC is in Paris and the staff is there. Um, it runs all kinds of interesting commissions like transportation, insurance, uh, commercial uh, environment now, and a host of others. And it's a you know, think tanks basically, and they, they create tools for international business right. and policies. And they, 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 they have uh, observer status at the United Nations, etc. Anyway, it's, it's like, it's like a very small, I think of it like the Vatican. Mm. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the members are from all over the world. So how, the way they work is that the, each country, each nationality, or you know, each country can have its own national committee. And so the national committees then join the ICC. And so the ICC, if it needs input from 
any any country on a particular thing, whether it's from all the countries or from specific countries for particular questions, it can go to the National Committee and find somebody at the National Committee that knows something about this. And the National Committees can send people to the commissions to take part in the in the development of these tools that I was speaking about. So it's it's great for the development of international business. It's a it's probably the biggest first NGO, but they didn't call themselves that at right, the time. It right. was just Anyway, they asked me to come and open the first office in Asia. I had never even been, well, I had been to Asia. I'd been to Thailand on vacation and loved it, but I'd never been to Asia. And they suggested that I might want to come to to Hong Kong. And I just said, I, I'm, I'm going to bet Beijing on a seminar in a couple of months. I'll stop off in Hong Kong on the way and just get a feel for it mm-hmm. and let you know. And um, I thought, why not? Why not? It's something completely different. It's it's, some, it's a, an excuse to an excuse to be to live in Asia for a while, which was yeah, another continent. And so um, I, it, it happened. Like all great adventures, uh, they often start with a proposition, and the answer being, why not? I mean, I had friends who said, "Oh, don't leave. Don't you know, you, 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 you know you you have friends here and all this." I said, "Well, I can." Yeah, I can make friends. I can keep my friends and I can make new friends. But this was really wonderful. And I started an exchange place, a six exchange square, um, just down the road here. Uh, at that time, we had a great view of the harbor, no longer. But I had this little tiny room in exchange, pl- exchange square in the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, which had half the floor at the time. Mm. And they gave me this little room. It was a bit bigger than a closet, but not much. I had a, I had a desk in it and two chairs. <laughs> two chairs, okay. Yeah, and a printer. Um, and so that was my home for the first year. And then someone asked me one day, um, is the ICC part of HKIAC <laughs> or is HKIAC part of ICC? Uh-huh. And I said, neither, and it's time ago. I got us our own office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's uh, talk about brand confusion or, or someone that was brand confused. <laughs> so I, uh, my mother, who used to come and visit me regularly, uh, she was had been a real estate agent and she went around, found me an office. And then we had to get it renovated and, and uh, we moved in and I had already one uh, assistant and at that point was able to take on another one because we had space. And uh, that's basically how I, ICC Asia started. Uh, my mom and I sitting on the floor one day in January of 1997 with a whole bunch of file folders and notebooks and me labeling them with various things I wanted to do. Hmm. And I, she looked at me and she said, we have an office. And I said, yes, we have an office. <laughs> and now? <laughs> what a journey, right? A journey. Yeah. Well, I did that for three years. It was I was supposed to go back to France after two years, but they asked me to stay another year, and I said, yes, I would. And then I was hooked, and I said, I'm going to stay in Hong Kong because I think there's so many things to do here. And it just seemed like a great place to start. And, um, you know, you were kind enough to let me sort of tail around and par- parallel with you um, while we were last week here for Hong Kong Arbitration Week. And, and you know this place. I mean, you know the, the restaurants and the stuff to go and the way to get through the mazes. So, I mean, it seems like Hong Kong has kind of become like another home in many ways. Well, I've been here since 1997. Yeah. I did leave. I went to London uh, 2007 and eight, 
And since then, I've been circulating, you know, among Hong Kong and, uh, well, Hong Kong and, Ca and Canada principally. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but I still have my place in Paris and I still visit London. So really those four cities are always on, on my calendar every year. Some more, some less. Your global neighborhoods, your stops, you know, yeah. wherever you go. Yeah. yeah. I, s I tell everybody I am, I'm local to Paris, Hong Kong, and Toronto. So I'll travel, you know, easily to any of those places. Well, absolutely. And we got to, and as I've mentioned now a couple of times, um, you know, when we're not on, on the record, uh, you got to stop in the Carolinas sometime. I mean, you got to make your way down to our little hamlet down there in, in the uh, East Coast. A cool idea. <laughs> Maybe we should do a CISG course there. That's a fantastic idea. And I'm going to tag the University of South Carolina and Charleston School of Law in this episode so they can know. They're on notice. CISG is coming to the Carolinas. <laughs> <laughs> um, we buried the lead a little bit, too, or at least one of the lead stories, I think. Um, you know, So you can't see it, folks, because it's an audio-only experience. Uh, Luis has a fantastic pen on uh, today, uh, several pens. And one of those pens is uh, an organization that's celebrating a, a milestone year, um, and that would be an organization called Arbitral Women, friends of the show. Um, we partnered with back in season one. And, uh, well, Luis, you've kind of had a little something to do with Arbitral Women. Can you talk to, about, talk to us about your experience with Arbitral Women? Yeah. Three X's on it, and that stands for 30 years. And I mentioned at the beginning that I went to this ICA con conference. It was my first one in Bahrain. And at that conference, there were 240 people. I was trying to meet everybody because I was just new to the ICC, and I was really keen. Um, and I found myself on the second day at the coffee table, and around the coffee table were about nine other women and myself. Mm -hmm. And we looked, and we thought, that's all of us. There's nine of us, and there's 240 people here. Mm. And for the first time, it occurred to me that there weren't, there were hardly any women in arbitration, at least not there. Excuse me. So I, I um, decided to look into it, and I um, sent a letter around to. Um, all the women that I knew that were sort of interested in arbitration, either peripherally or some of them were doing it, not very many, but a few. Uh, and um, with the letter, I sent a questionnaire, which is something like 27 questions. It was not, not a little tiny questionnaire, but people weren't doing it then. This is before the Internet, of course. Right. <clears throat> so I sent this letter to these women, the nine women and a few others, and asked them to send it to everybody, that, all the women that they knew. And so I got this back, and there were, I think, uh, about 80, 81 or 86, I can't remember, responses. Mm. 86. I didn't know there were that many women who actually even knew about arbitration. <laughs> anyway, um, I decided to have a dinner on the eve of the annual Institute Congress, conference. And um, the Institute was a, a think tank. It was led by Pierre, Pierre, Pierre Lalive, Professor Pierre Lalive, who's, who's ev everybody studied his books to learn about international private law. Right. Very, very well-known Swiss. And he was the, my boss at the Institute. So they had this conference ev every year. And so I invited all the women um, to, to come to dinner at this, the night before the conference. 
And uh, my secretary at the time was keeping track, and we'd found a lovely little restaurant near the ICC. And then I went off to Mexico because I was helping to organize a, 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 um, an ICC conference there in Cancun. And uh, I came back a month later, and Catherine, my secretary, said, we've, we've got to get another restaurant. And I said, why? What happened? And she said, well, this restaurant only takes 40 people. And I said, well, so? And she said, there's 60 people coming. <laughs> so yeah. I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was amazed. Anyway, so um, Mireille Philippe, who um, was at the time and, and was for many, many years, uh, with the ICC, we were colleagues at the ICC. We didn't actually work in the same building, but we were, we were colleagues, and we got to be very friendly. And she was very keen on this. Uh, she, you know, she was working in arbitration. She had started out as a secretary, and then she got her law degree, and and was a special counsel even then. Um, but um, but she was really enthusiastic about this, and so the two of us found another restaurant, and we, you know, put these tables of. I think there were six tables of ten, and every f ten, every table had a different flower. So mm -hmm. when you walked in, you got a flower, and you had to find your table according to the flower that was on it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we had everyone stand up and give a one-minute resume of who they were, what their experience was, and why they were there. And it was the most amazing, amazing meeting. I mean, Mirez and I, I don't know whether she talked to, talked to you about it when, when you interviewed her, but... It was just, it was mind-blowing. It was, we just, the power and the energy and the talent that we saw there and the, and the will to do something was just incredible. And so that was really the birth of our Arbitral Women, and it was 30 years ago uh, in November. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think you, you point out, um, Marissa certainly, she's been on the show, is a good friend of the show, um, and we're glad that she was able to be um, a guest and that you've been able to come as well. And what I've told Merez and what I tell you here as well is that, you know, from the impact that you've had in the arbitral um, community, especially and uh, impacting the amount of women that are getting appointed and active to even beyond that space where an organization that myself and um, another colleague uh, and, and a friend of the show, Nancy Thevenin, and I have founded earlier this year was the Association of Black Arbitration Professionals. And it was taking a page, um, inspiration from the work that you women did uh, 30 years ago and have continued to do um, with that same sort of idea in mind is that we want to bring folks together and continue to make the, the field look like it is in real life, that um, it's not just any particular demographic. And in fact, there are people and voices that aren't being heard and, need, and deserve a seat at the table. Absolutely, absolutely. I heard about that initiative and I thought that's fantastic. And then the, the beauty of it is we had no idea at the time. I mean, Mireille was much more um, technically evolved than I was, and still is. Mm. Um, and so she started this chat group, and then it kind of grew from that. And people s said, "Well, let's get together. Let's uh, you know, let's do something." A and and so we decided it wasn't until 2006 that we actually became incorporated. Mm. But Mireille had been sort of handling this this communications um, and, and exchanges of ideas. And so we started it. And but when we started in 2006, there were, I think, um, I don't know, maybe 10 members of the board to start and another 10 or 15 who were founding members but were actually not on the board. They came to that first meeting, which was in Montreal, by the way. Mm. And um, 
it was really hard to get women to join. They didn't want to join because they felt that, well, they didn't want their prospective employers to have the impression that they were bra-burning feminist radicals who were going to uh, unseat the the men who were currently occupying the boys' club we call arbitration. Right. They didn't want down with the patriarchy types. They were worried about being perceived like that. Exactly, exactly. And we weren't doing that at all. In fact, we really knew... I mean, knowing who we're dealing with, <laughs> the the demographic that we were dealing with, he would be very, very careful not to excite them and not to upset them right. because they're the people in power. Mm-hmm. So it's always had to be softly, softly, firm, but solid. And so we, you know, we we tried to get people together. We had a few uh, meetings, but really it was mostly just exchanges and and uh, and 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 people started to do things. Like they would look at a panel and say, "There's six people talking. There are no ma- women on this panel. Mm-hmm. Why not?" Mm-hmm. Uh, the manel, yeah. Uh, the manel, yes. And Lorraine Brennan had a fabulous idea because she she was with the ICC at one point, but she uh, was with Jams and uh, running the Jams office in in England. Sure. And so she had a budget. She had a sponsorship budget. Okay. And <laughs> she would, she would, you know, they would write, they'd send their draft flyer to her and say, will you sponsor us? And she started phoning them up and saying, you've got a mantle here. When you put women on the panel, I'll think about giving you money. Mm. And so, and others, I did it too. I, I would call up friends and say, you know, you've got this panel. Um, there are no women on it. I think you could really benefit by having, having, a woman or two on the panel and just in case you didn't know any I can give you a list right here mm-hmm. and so I did that too and we a lot of us did it and I think that had a big it, it, it kind of snowballed and now you never see panels that don't have at least one woman even but the thing is you still see some panels where the woman's a moderator mm-hmm. and the guys have all the knowledge and you know she's asking the questions and they're answering but that even that's beginning to disappear well, right, and I was get, that's exactly where I was going to come from is that um, I got invited to a panel earlier this year and I was like, hey, I mean, ain't, ain't no women on this panel. <laughs> um, well, that's great. Yeah, when yeah. the men start looking at when the men start noticing it, that's great. That's like, you know, our men, you know, people say, well, why don't you let men be arbitral women? Because at the very start, we said, when a man is in the room, the dynamic is different. Yes. And so many women who are talented and otherwise confident will just give over and say, oh, well, let the man be president. Mm. You know, like this, like the, the lawyer who's, the, 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 as a high school student, was, um, was the top person in her class, but didn't get to be valedictorian mm. because the second guy was a, what, the second was a guy. Mm. He got to be valedictorian. Right. Now, that was a long time ago. That wouldn't happen today. That was the kind of thing that would happen. Well, right, and and with this this organization I mentioned before, ABAP, you know, this is a, a project that has taken a couple of years to come to get to fruition. And part of the discussions that we've had is exactly what you've mentioned there: is that some people have said, "Okay, well, we'll let uh, white folk or other people from other demographics join," and and then we're very clear that that's not how we were going to run this organization, not because we don't have allies, we want people to be inclusive and all that, but because, to your point, the conversations that you can have, the type of advocacy that you can do is different when it's 
made up of the group to which it is targeting and servicing. I, I, I really do agree. And, and the thing is, you can also say a lot of things in a, in a homogenous group that you wouldn't want to say publicly or it might be taken the wrong way by someone who hadn't, hasn't lived the experience. And so I, th- th- there is a certain amount of that as well. But really, basically, what we wanted to do was make women, not just give them the opportunity, but make them take the opportunity to be in leadership pos- positions. Be in leadership positions. And then I think, you know, we talk about um, in a lot of professional spaces, there's mentoring, which is what Arbitral Women already does a great job of. But the thing I think is really cool is the sponsorship. And not just from a monetary standpoint, but, you know, if an Arbitral Women person lets folks know, lets the organization know that they're going to be on a panel or that they're doing something, launching an initiative, anything like that, oh, you're going to know about it. <laughs> That's right. We are to support and promote women in arbitration and, and, and other forms of dispute resolution. So, yes, that's one of the things that we do. We've got this um, uh, profile section on our website. So if someone's looking for somebody with a particular skill set, language skills, um, um, experience, they can find a woman probably with that if they're not two, you know, if they don't give 15 or 16 different criteria that have to be met, they'll find a woman. Well, yeah, and, you know, the last point, sort of point that I'd raise on here, and this is, uh, I laughed about this with uh, the arbitral, uh, the lunch match ladies when they were on the show. Um, the, the funniest thing to me is, as a man, you know, so you hear and you see all the great things that these women are doing, and you're like, great, that's awesome. C- support it, kudos. But then you'll sort of be at a conference or something, and a guy, some man will be like, oh, but why does it have to be an arbitral women? Why can't they be like an arbitral men? And, and they just. That's, <laughs> that's what the arbitration community was before. It was arbitral men. Yeah. Yes. No, no. You and I are in the same wavelength. Yeah. But I, I'm listening to this guy who, you know, goes, oh, why can't they be an arbitral men? And it's always, it's, I could not sigh any harder. <laughs> just sort of, <laughs> I've got to go to the bathroom. I, I just, I can't. <laughs> The thing is, we don't dislike men. We don't want to threaten men. We love men. We love men who are allies. There are men who have been helping us since long before Arbitral Women was even imagined and who still help us. And I can give you this. I I won't mention some right now because I don't want to leave anybody out, but I can give you some names of people you might want to interview. Um, but those are our allies. We didn't call them allies that that we liked them and they were wonderful to us. Right. <laughs> they, that they helped us a lot. Right. But now we call them allies and they are very important. We have what we call a champion for change, which is an award that we give periodically to a man who has really done great things to help us. Um, the first people who won it were um, Donald Donovan and uh, Klaus Reichert because... They were the ones who organized ICA in Dublin that year and that there were 47% of the speakers were women and mm. it never had been done before. Nothing close to it had been done before. And I don't think it's been equaled since. Right. All right. No, I mean, I think that that makes um, a lot of sense. Um, you know, before we sort of shift into the, you know, sort of the back end of, of the conversation, one more thing that I'd like to ask you about is um, from your perspective, I guess, more as an arbitrator, um, you know, what are some of the, tre- maybe what is a trend that you think we might see, whether it be the use of technology or just maybe in practice or anything along those lines um, that you could see here happening over the next few years? Is there anything in particular that comes to mind? Or 
Virtual arbitrations has changed us. I think that people are much more tuned now to the jingle of the of the of the uh, pocketbook mm. um, when they start talking about taking witnesses across the uh, across continents. Sure. So I think we're going to see a lot more virtual arbitrations. I don't think in the larger ones that that will ever replace face to face. And frankly, I really much prefer face-to-face encounters. I don't know why, but I remember them when I don't necessarily remember who I spoke to or when, uh, if it was a webinar that, you know, where everybody was on the screen. I just don't, it doesn't make the same um, physical impression on my mind. Well, right. And I think that kind of makes sense, though, right? Because you can remember a place that you physically went and sat down with someone versus... You know, I think it's probably the same for you. I can open up my calendar. I might have six, seven, eight, ten calls a day. And, you know, which one of those calls was, you know, X hearing and, you know, had these details. I mean, I could certainly see that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's important. But I think what's going to be really important is the, oh, and terrifying, is artificial intelligence. Mm. And at least for the smaller disputes, there's going to be, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I think it's already here in small areas. Um, it's not terribly well known yet, and people are still very wary about it. But I think it's going to become the way of the future. And I think that comes from you know how tribunals sort of interface with it, but also sort of an existential question for law firms, especially big firms, the understanding that the, the, the business model, the value proposition to in-house counsel sort of has to fundamentally change and how they sort of adapt to meet that demand in the market. It's, it's in, in one way, it's terrific because if you can use artificial intelligence to inform your strategy, that's fabulous. I, where I'm concerned is when the human element tends to disappear. Mm. And I, we're not anywhere near that yet, I don't think. I mean, I know that there have been decisions made, but and and probably in, in fairly complex cases. But I don't think we're really there. I don't think as as a I call it the the, the profession, like the arbitration profession as it is becoming, mm-hmm. isn't ready for that yet. We we have to prepare ourselves, and I think that that's happening now. With well, there were several seminars this week at Arbitration Week, which dealt with. Not that well, I was doing one on arbit- uh, on on AI particularly, but it came up so many times over the week in various contexts. It's we have to know we have to know about it. I, I agree with that, um, and I think you know the, the 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 probably the the gap in between those two things, ready and not ready, is that the technology isn't quite there where the te- where the AI the tech can make decisions. Really, it can sort of parrot or sort of yeah. m- mimic. And, but, but, People don't realize that. They're afraid because they say, well, the fourth arbitrator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it can only tell you information. And only it can tell you any information it knows, and that information may or not be good. One of my big concerns is is the garbage in, garbage out syndrome. Correct. Because I think that AI has the risk of, of developing with as a base point all of the unconscious biases of the creators, which do tend to be mostly men at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's how education has happened, and that's how the you know the people that work for in Silicon Valley and for, and for X and for all the others, and um, all, so many of them are men. Yeah. So the that bias, but also um, there was a case recently in I think it was in New York. I'm yes. not sure where 
two lawyers were sanctioned for having used AI to prepare their their pleadings, and AI fabricated some fake cases. Which it's prone to do. It will do. Yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, that's crazy. That, that, that can't be... So that has to be somehow controlled, but I don't know how. Well, and shame on those lawyers, right? You know, for not for, for, for not you know doing their due diligence to check those cases and and make sure that their arguments were on um, on solid legal legal ground. Um, but I think you're right. I think that if we're relying on humans to catch all of the the junk that will come out of people being uh, unscrupulous with this type of technology, um, disinformation that's another threat. Exactly. And where do you where is where does controlling disinformation and censorship Where's the line? This is going to be really scary stuff in the future, I think. I agree. And unfortunately, well, we, won't, we, we can't rehash that panel here um, with the time that we have. But, um, but no, I think it's um, – I, I think you're right. I, I'm a believer. I think it's a great tool. But it has people have to remember that it's just a tool. It's not something uh, that is going to take the thinking or the reasoning out of um, working through these problems. Um, shifting topics and shifting sort of tones a little bit. Um, you've talked about it a little bit, um, especially in your intro, but I wonder who have been some of the the role models or guiding influences in your career. Perhaps you can say, listened earlier in the segment, <laughs> um, but I guess any ones that might come to particular mind as um, we sort of head towards uh, the back, af- back portion of this conversation. I've had several people in my life who I now call mentors. At the time, I didn't think of it that way. I think perhaps... Um, the first, at least in terms of uh, of my legal career, was um, Chief Justice uh, Ted Andrews, who was the Chief Justice of the Family Court, and I interned with him mm. for two summers, and he was amazing. He just he, well, we we became very good friends until he passed away a few years ago, and I spoke at his funeral. Mm. He, Ted, um, just naturally recognized that women could do things. He named Rosie Abella as the first um, judge of the fa- female judge of the family court. Mm. That was back in the late, maybe early 70s. At the time, she was heavily pregnant, mm. and it was absolutely scandalous. How, how could he do this? But he knew. She went on to become a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada and did a wonderful job and has been brilliant. Um, he, he found her. He pushed her. He pushed me. Um, he didn't push me in a particular direction which, in which I ended up staying because I was in family law for a while, but I didn't stay there. But he had faith in me. So he's the first. The next one, I think, was um, someone called Michel Goudet, who was, uh, had been the president of the ICC court, and he, was, he volunteered and helped me a lot with my work in, at the Institute. And he was fabulous because he'd been there when Jean Monnet came up with this idea for the European community. Mm-hmm. So he was brilliant and, and just very, very um, helpful and t- took me under his wing and was very helpful both intellectually and also socially because and I was in France. It was a different community, and I had to get used to that. And then the next person was Paul Gélinas, who's a Canadian colleague, whom whom I met some years into my into my time in France, and uh, he's the one that um, suggested that I apply for the job at the ICC. Hmm. He knew it was going. It was going to be open, and he phoned me up when I was in Toronto and, or in Ottawa and said, uh, this job is open. Do you want to 
try for it. And I said, I'll be there on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and ever since, I mean, he's always been extremely good uh, um, in, ter- in ter- terms of helping me out uh, with my arbitration career as well. He's mm-hmm. been great. Um, I, we were actually on a panel together a couple of years ago, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was great working with him. They had the third part person we didn't know. Um, neither of us knew. Um, but he was wonderful as well. And it was a beautiful panel. I, we had so much fun working on it. Um, it was challenging, but it was a lot of fun. And um, I think the result was good, too. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Kaplan. Sure. Neil, Neil Kaplan, we, uh, I met Neil Kaplan at the very beginning of my tenure at the ICC. He's always been extremely helpful, very generous, and uh, with his time, with, with his advice, and, and just uh, making sure I knew the people that I needed to know mm-hmm. as well. And uh, no, he's been, Neil has been a great friend, and I mean, he's among the mentors as well. I think that's about it. Now, now, a lot of the people that have gone before me have retired, and I'm the mentor. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's, and it's uh, it's a funny transition because I some I don't know when it happened, but it was in the last few years that suddenly I thought I'm one of the old ones now. <laughs> no. No, no, but I mean, Zdarkin Sr., and I, I 100% agree with you. I think you are the one that is sort of having all these maybe known and unknown impacts on, um, mm-hmm. you know, contemporaries and those that are coming up and want to know, you know, how they get there. We'll come to that point in just a moment. I met somebody on the street the other day, uh-huh. and he said, Professor Barrington. And he, he said, you taught me in 2004, okay. and I've been at the bar now for 14 years. Wow. Yeah, that was the beginning of his uh, of his career. Mm-hmm. I know. So oh, well, I mean, that, that's that that's I guess what it's all about, right? Is uh, yeah. planting those seeds and uh, seeing where they get. That's to right. That's right. Sometimes you don't even realize you're planting the seeds. They kind of drop out of your pocket without your knowing. And you come <laughs> back, and there's a tree there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, uh, we're wrapping up here. Uh, we're going to go in a little bit of a, a lightning round. Maybe lightning's too strong of a term. A faster round. So. Um, What's on your bookshelf? What are you reading these days? I have just finished two books. One was an, a fairly old book by a um, Canadian author called Hey Nostradamus, okay. which is a really interesting book about asking questions about your life and about the, the things around you. I liked it. Um, it's weird. Um, I'd never read it, and I can't believe I'd never read it. Anyway, uh, and the other one is called The Secret Life of Bees. Yes. And I love that book. Have you read it? Yes, of course. Well, I keep bees. I have three hives in Ontario. Mm. Um, and uh, this was a beautiful book. I thought it for many re- for so many reasons. But uh, it was also really interesting about, about hearing some of the, 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 the tips of the beekeeper. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a classic one. And we'll make sure to, uh, to tag both of those in the show notes. But um, those are both good, uh, good titles. And uh, I think anyone in the audience, you'd be enriched by uh, diving into either. You know, uh, summer's, I guess, over. So your fall reading list. You can maybe add. Okay, shifting from books, music. What, uh, what kind of music are you into? Genres, favorite artists, anything like that? I was a huge Beatles fan. And I still love everything that the Beatles did. Okay. Um, but I still, I like the Stones, too. Sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> that was way back when. Um, I um, I really love more classical music now. 
and I listen to a lot of jazz. Mm. I'm trying to get accustomed to opera, and I found that there are parts that I really like, but I still have a hard time with some of it. Mm. Um, but if I'm in the car, I'll probably listen to something classical or, or jazz. I find jazz really calming in traffic jams. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are you watching anything on Netflix or Hulu or any of the streaming services? I watched The Lincoln Lawyer until I, until, until I ran out. I, I, the the episodes are finished now. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was kind of fun. Mm. Um, I, I try and pick up one of these, some of these serials once in a while. Yeah. Um, but also, I see. I love concerts. There was, uh, there have been a couple of them, um, and uh, other than that, no, not anything particular. I was, I was addicted to the Good Doctor at one point. Uh, yes. Yeah. We are coming down here to an hour. Just our last couple of questions, um, and this is probably one of the last, you know, sort of more substantive ones, I guess. Let's say you were approached by a recent grad, someone that's just coming out of law school, um, looking to go into international arbitration, or maybe someone that's uh, a practitioner that's looking to shift into the field. What sort of advice would you give them in, in making that transition or trying to break in? Just coming out of law school, does that mean they've got already got their LLM in ADR or arbitration? <laughs> <laughs> it could, right? It could, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are people who are actually doing PhDs in, in, in ADR and arbitration yes. now, which, of course, was unknown 30 years ago but um, I think that the profession of arbitration is becoming much more technocratic in other words you have to know how it works and and and, and what it's about and then you have to decide that yes you want to do that and then you start thinking about how you can how you can get into it I kind of fell into it as I said by accident mm -hmm. and I didn't know that it was going to be hard because it didn't occur to me that there were no women and it didn't occur to me that they didn't, there were no it. young people yeah. so I kind of you know fools rush in <laughs> yeah. anyway um, so I think that it's important to get a really good grounding educationally and to really know how to have uh, to, to do legal research and to be able to come up with the issues, to be able to f see the issues, find the find the trees in the forest. Right. Uh, so I think that's if you if you have that kind of bent, then I think it's important. But then to get into it, you need to show that. And one of the best ways is writing. Mm. I'm guilty of not doing this enough, mm. but writing is really good. Um, a case that that interested you when you were in law school, you didn't know why it was decided that way. Um, that that's that's the starting point um, but also working with people who do arbitrations can be very important I try to have a tribunal secretary whenever I'm a sole arbitrator and sometimes when I'm in a panel and traditionally I've never paid them they've just come on and helped out you know helped with the chronology read all the papers and then we talk about the issues and mm -hmm. it's for me as a sole practitioner it's great to have taught somebody you know um, to chat with um, and they're subject to the same confidentiality sure. and c conflicts and everything as I am so um, so that I think that's one way of doing it a lot of arbitrators don't like it because they're concerned that there's this you know the, the, tr the tribunal secretary is it's it's an extra person in the room it's an extra expense there may be some 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 something could happen uh, but I think more and more are taking on um, 
tribunal secretaries now. And of course, with the tribunal secretary courses and the, the, and the guidelines that are out now for using tribunal secretaries, they're not supposed to write the award. <laughs> Shocker, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there have been cases. Yeah. So uh, that's one another way. Um, interning with, a, with one of the arbitration institutions is 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 really fabulous experience. Um, the HKIC takes on several inter- interns every year, and 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 th- they get right into there, and they 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 work with the, with the council. Mm-hmm. They also do other things, like they often help me out with the Vismoot. Um, the HKIC is a, is is very generous in in lending me our um, um, interns for the week of the orals. Sure. Um, but there are lots of other institutions as well um, around the world. I suppose the best way to start is probably with, if you've got a reputable institution in the place where you live, then start there. But of course, if you've done that, then try the uh, L- the ICC, LCIA, AAA. They all take interns, yeah. and uh, and that's how that's how to learn it. No, I think that I think. I think that's great advice, and those are great tips, um, and a lot of a lot of good tips in there too. So we'll make sure to to to, to note some of that in the show notes. Is one of the internships is that it does because they're very often not paid. Right. Very rarely are they paid, mm-hmm. and so it means you have to be able to support yourself for those three months. Mm-hmm. And you've just come out of law school. You've probably got some debt, or at least you, or maybe you're living with your parents, and you've got to move to go to the internship. You've got to pay rent for, and and it makes it very inaccessible to a lot of people, especially to countries whose money is worth nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I think for that reason, it's probably good to start at home. But the problem is not all countries have a good arbitration institution. So you may be getting bad experience. Mm -hmm. But maybe (laughs) that's not such a bad thing either. You know what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's right. Um, And I think that's something we've talked about on the show before is sort of uh, this sort of um, intangible barriers um, that exist. Uh, you know. So what, what I was about to say, though, is that if you get a job in a law firm that does litigation and has some arbitration work, you get in there and then you just say, hey, I'm here. I have an arbitration background. If you have a case, I'll work for it. And I'll do it in addition to whatever else I'm doing. I'll take it on and I'll help you. And then become the go-to person for arbitration in that office. Because a lot of, I know in Canada, we there are no no large offices have a pure arbitration s- section. They all have litigation arbitration. So there be some people that do more arbitration than others, but it's always the same the same t- team, you know. And so that's how to get in, in in some countries. I mean, I think that starting local, trying to, what I like to say is own your block, you know, own where you are, be the expert, be the best there. And then that sort of, you sort of build momentum from there to sort of climb to the the global stage. And, you know, it might take time and a little bit of, a lot of effort to do that, but in doing that, you sort of develop the skills and the reputation in order to, 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 to arm you and prepare you for that next level. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get to be second chair and then you get to be first chair and, Eventually, after a while, people say, gee, they did a really great job. Maybe they'd make a good arbitrator. <laughs> Five o'clock on a Friday, you can do whatever you'd like, wave a magic wand, you know, money, time is no issue. How do you spend that weekend? This is my dream or was what I actually do? Well, what you would do if you could, yeah. Um, I'd get on a plane uh, for Thailand and go to Chivasom, the resort, for about three days. Okay. Yeah. Long weekend. Okay, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we are, you know, we're wrapping up here. This is the, actually the final question. Um 
you know, you've mentioned some names throughout the interview, the discussion. Um, any final shout outs, waves to the audience, uh, tips of the cap you would give um, as we get ready to wrap up here? To all the people that make the VIS East what it is. Mm. And that means obviously the students, because they do it, they do the work, but it means their coaches. It means all the people who work with us to make sure it, 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 it goes well. Um, but mostly it's the arbitrators, it's the professionals who come and spend their time reading the memos, grading the memos, hearing arguments, and, and giving, you know, sharing their knowledge and their advice with the students because without them it couldn't happen and for, for me they just don't get enough credit they come at their own expense mm-hmm. um, we have a star arbitrator every year but that's you know it's nothing to compared to what they do and I think that's I think that I'm most grateful to them you know them for being able to do what we've done with the Vissy's mood I think that that's a great one I will second that and I will give uh, that she'll, she's getting like back-to-back or you know um, multiple shout outs here as we come towards the end of season five but our friend of the show Sherlyn Tung whose offices she's been kind enough to let us use for the as the mobile studio while we've been here in Hong Kong Um, so Sherlyn tip of the cap to you as well and I know you work a lot with Sherlyn too I I think her official title is deputy director so she's doing a lot of the groundwork here because I'm not here that often we're both traveling tremendously Mm -hmm. but um, but um, she's got the office here um, which which is wonderful, and uh, with her energy and her contacts, she's done a fantastic job of getting this year ready. Um, and the other person uh, is is Maricel, Maricel Somerville, mm. who has been with us for I think this is her sixteenth year. Wow! She started out as basically just filing and doing the photocopying and things like that, and she's now basically managing the day to day life of the Vissi's mood and t- you know she handles registration now and uh, and all the finances and d- all kinds of things that she does that she she's grown into the job just amazingly that's right and we'll make sure to tag them in the show notes when we post the episode um, Luis look uh, the time has zoomed by <laughs> we, we, yeah exactly um, we, we've gone extremely quickly uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to hang out with us here in the digital studio do you want to uh, sign us off here I am Louise Barrington and there's no disputing it you are listening to Tales of the Tribunal thank you and we will see y'all next time So there you have it, my conversation with Luis. Um, Hopefully you got as much out of it as I did. You know, as you would have heard, Luis is witty, um, fun and interesting to chat with. And it was really great to just sit and chat with her and pick with her brain on a number of topics that we discussed um, from the CISG, from uh, Arbitral Women to ICA and all of those things that we talked about there. So I hope that you got a lot out of it. You should listen to it again with your notepad if uh, maybe you missed some of the things. Um, There was a lot of great nuggets that were in there. And of course, great shout outs um, throughout the episode. So I think that uh, that will do it just about for us. Um, There's some final things that we would want to mention. I would give a quick tip of the cap to the IBA and Juice Monday for their fantastic contest that they ran. Uh, It was a 45 under 45 contest um, where they 
solicited stories from around the world of international arbitration. Uh, the winners were announced earlier this year, and uh, yours truly, although I was not a winner, that's okay, IBA and Juice Monday, I, I understand, I get it. Um, I was a runner-up, and so they published that story titled The Arbitration Socialite, um, or that was the theme anyway, this past week, and I think we might do something fun with that story. Um, it's available for um, for review and reading um, online. Um, it's on my LinkedIn. We'll probably post it from the Tales of the Tribunal page as well, but we might have a little fun special surprise to go along with that, so keep your uh, eyes tuned. <laughs> um, and finally, I guess that brings us to uh, that sad part of every season where we're going to say goodbye for a little bit. We're going to go on hiatus here for Christmas and New Year's, um, sort of recharge the batteries. We'll be back with Disputes Digest. Uh, Realistically, probably late January, start of February to bring you more news around the field. Lord knows there is a bunch of it. Um, But before we get there, before we say farewell and happy holidays, um, you know, one of the goals that we had for Tales of the Tribunal this season was for us to finally uh, break that 30,000 mark um, of downloads. And, And we did that this season. Thanks to all of you. Uh, we are sitting at 31,000 downloads as we record this, and I'm blown away. Um, you know, the audience here is fantastic. You know, you guys don't get to see the, the great emails and the comments that we get necessarily. So, uh, you know, thank you for all that you do, whether it's liking, commenting, leaving a review, sharing the show with friends or colleagues, um, telling people that you know about the show. All of that helps us do what we do here. And I know that you have a lot of options um, for the content that you consume more broadly and especially in the international legal space. I mean, who can use, you know, multiple international arbitration or legal podcasts? So I know that it's very special, each of you that takes the time to come back week in and week out. So really thank you for all that you do for listening to us and for your feedback on the show. Um, You know, we do our best, but... uh, Despite uh, this buttery smooth radio voice, I don't have any media training uh, properly. So uh, despite what we've been able to do here at the show, um, you know, we are ultimately a lawyer by day and a podcaster, uh, radio media sort of uh, organization um, by night. So we really appreciate uh, what you do in terms of your support. So that's a long way to say thank you. It's been a great season. It's been a great five seasons so far. And we're excited about what's going to come next, um, what we can bring you and all the stuff that uh, we can do to engage with the show. So, end of the day, final comments. Thank you so much. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. All right, well, look, that's it. Um, I, for those of you celebrating, I hope you have a great holiday period. Even if you're not celebrating a specific holiday, I hope you take some time to get some rest, to recover, to prepare mentally, spiritually, physically for the 2024 season and year that is ahead. I hope that we get to see some of you as we get out into the world for different events on these digital streets as well, and maybe even in the digital studio. Um, of course, like I said, if you have folks that you think might be a good fit to work with the show, don't forget to uh, come by, say hello, send them our way, and drop us a note all the time at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com or to visit us on LinkedIn. So that's it for this season of Tales of the Tribunal. We'll see you next season. We'll have some more content in between now and then. And until next year, thank you for listening to Tales of the Tribunal. And we'll see you next time. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. 
All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.